As we have spent these last few months going through Paul's letter to the Philippians, you might recall that Paul, in verse 127, challenged the Philippians to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And then he commanded them, in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, to, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He then pointed out the example of Christ himself who did just that, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if the church embraces the example of Christ, we will be, it continues in chapter 2, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So we are to look at Jesus Christ himself as the example of how we are to live. But can we be perfectly honest? That is a really, really high goal, right? I mean, Jesus was also, he was fully man, he was also God. He was also God. And when we set our example that high, perhaps we might be somewhat tempted to be discouraged. Christ is always our example. We are to be more and more like him as in our journey through joy uh, in our pursuit of holiness in this life. But the Apostle Paul recognizes that, that that is a very, very high ideal in certain ways, certainly one we should go for. But could there be examples more on the human plane that we might be able to emulate. Of course, Paul is an example himself, and we've already seen that as we've gone through Philippians. But in this morning's passage, he wants to provide with us two human examples of the types of humility that should characterize the Christian and that should cause our church to be to be consumed with in our pursuit of holiness. And in these examples, uh, uh, like the Philippians, my hope is that you'll follow the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, who are themselves examples of Christ, as we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30 this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and, and humbly ask Him to help us to be the kind of humble servants He expects His children to be. Lord, we do turn to You and we ask, God, that You would help us to lay aside the, the pride of arrogance, And the pride of self-loathing, the pride that boasts, and the pride that wallows in self-pity. Every single one of us, to a certain degree or another, have this sort of pride. And it is the sin that brought Satan down from the glory of the realms of the angels. It is the sin that brought Adam and Eve down and caused the whole world to fall it is a sin that should not be attached to the Christian who in humility recognizes his need for a savior. All of our problems, the conflicts that we have either as a church or a family or as roommates really stem to this issue of not being humble. As we look at the example of Timothy and of Epaphroditus today, I pray, God, that that example will, will come to our hearts as we even look to the example of Christ And as they followed you in humility, let us do the same. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Again, please turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. You will find your home group helps insert of some assistance here. But it's about as simple as an outline gets for a sermon. There's really just two points here. The example of Timothy in verses 19 through 24 and the example of Epaphroditus in verses 25 through 30. And with gratitude, we can look at these passages and look at they're just like us. They're sinful people. And yet they have devoted themselves to Christ to the point of sacrifice that we also need to do ourselves. So we turn our attention to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. We're going to first look at the example of Timothy. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So he begins here again. Remember, Apostle Paul is in jail in a sense. He is chained to a Roman guard. He is under house arrest in Rome. He has been in a situation of being under Roman arrest for four years now. And, uh, and yet he writes this in a sense from, from prison, but he writes it with a profound sense of joy because Paul has learned through his suffering dependency on Jesus Christ. And that is the best place for us to be. So he says here, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not a throwaway line. That's not like, God bless you. You know, God bless you. Uh, Nancy and I had an opportunity to worship at a Lutheran church in Hanover, Germany, some five years ago. And it, the whole thing was in German. The only word I understood was Gesundheit. <laughs> ah, I got that. <laughs> you know, Gesundheit. God bless you. We understood that. Heard about four times. I was really proud of myself for that opportunity. So, but he says here, I hope in the Lord. I hope in the Lord. Why does Paul say that? Because he really does hope in the Lord. Paul has a consuming interest in recognizing God's providence over everything he does. Over everything he does. He saw, we saw this as he wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 4.19. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. The secret to Paul's joy, which is the kind of joy that you want to have as a Christian, is that you live your life quorum Deo. You live your life before the face of God. And if you're a Christian, that face is smiling at you. That face adores you. He is a father that has purchased you with the blood of his son and adopted you into his family. He is not scowling at you. He is not despising you. He is not going to get even with you. He is not punishing you. If you are a Christian, your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he is bringing things into your life that you might think are bad that actually will end up being quite good. Sometimes he brings things that you think are good that might end up being bad. He is a loving father. So we understand this principle. Paul understood this principle. Paul understood this principle as he is thrown in a dungeon and as a mosquito lands on his ankle. Everything that came to the apostle Paul came through a hand of a loving God. And if we could grasp that principle of Coram Deo, we could have... We could just, the burdens would so, so often fall off of our shoulders 
Proverbs 16, 9 says this, the, man, the heart of man plans his way, but God establishes his steps. God establishes every one of your steps, every single one of them, every minute of the day. Hundreds of years ago, the old Christians understood this principle, and when they would make a plan, they would write a letter, they say, I'm planning to do this, and I'm going to do business in such and such an area, and they would sign the very bottom of the letter. They would often just use the initials DV, but it stood for Dio Valenti. It, uh, that is God willing, or if not, God doesn't prevent it, this is will, what will be done. And it's a good thing to use. Lord willing, I will be able to do this. James chapter 4 says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, I will go to such and such a, a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are in a midst that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord's wills, he will live uh, uh, we will live and do this or that. So Paul understood this, and that is a principle that we need to understand in unlocking this principle of joy. So then we say, he says that his hope is that he can send Timothy to you soon. He is hoping to send Timothy back to Philippi. Now, who's Timothy? Well, Timothy, of course, is a native of Lystra in the province of Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey. Timothy's dad was a Greek and probably a pagan. He came from a, 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 an unequally yoked parentage there. His mother uh, was, uh, was a convert, and so was his grandmother, his mother Eunice, his grandmother Lois, and they raised him up in the scriptures. But Timothy had this amazing, a unique appeal. He was Jewish from his mother's and grandmother's standpoint, but he was a Greek from his father's standpoint. So here is this, this, this uh, Jewish Messiah where the word of the gospel is going out all and out to the Greek-speaking world. So Paul, Timothy had this ability to be able to, to kind of go into both cultures here. And uh, so Timothy is, is, has been a companion for Paul, with Paul for about 10 years now. Uh, and he says here, so that I may be cheered of news by you. So he's hoping to send Timothy to find out what's going on with the Philippian church and then get that information back. And he's confident the Philippian church is doing well. They are his most mature church in many ways. But there's an interesting thought here that, that a pastor's emotions are connecting with his flock. A shepherd's emotions are connected with the sheep that he is over here. So he is hoping to be cheered by news of you. The, the, the well-being that Paul experiences here and a lot of the joy has to do with how well his, this flock, this church, these Christians are following the principles of the Lord here. He has a confidence that he's hoping to be able to, to be there with them. But he says here about Timothy that I have no one like him. Timothy is faithful. Timothy is faithful. Now, here's he's in Rome. This is probably a big church because Rome was a big, titty, a, a big city. But he looks and he thinks there's no one in all of Rome that's like Timothy. Uh, the, the word that is used there in the Greek is actually uh, that he is, he is one soul with him. He is of equal soul with him. Timothy was Paul's mini-me. He, he, was, he had been so trained under Paul that when Timothy spoke, he sounded like the Apostle Paul. And this is a pattern you three, see throughout Holy Scripture, isn't it? You see, you see Moses and Joshua, right? Elijah, Elisha, Peter, Mark, Alexander, Jack. It's something we need to continue. It, you should, as a Christian, always be looking to follow the example of those who are more mature than you, and seeking to pass that on to those who are less mature than you, who may be new in the faith. And you might be thinking, I'm 19 years old. Who am I going to pass this on? Anybody from 19 under? <laughs> or someone who's 45 but has never been a Christian before? 
Nancy and I used to teach parenting classes when our, when our children were eight and nine years old. And people would say, well, what do you know about parenting? And I said, well, I don't, but I figured out some things from the Bible. And so far, so good, you know. But let's look at what the scripture is. Why don't you help me? You know, let's do this together. So he's, he, 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 he is uh, 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 endorsing Timothy and Timothy's character and Timothy's ministry here to, of course, the Philippians, because he needs the, uh, uh, the Philippians to be able to welcome. He says that no one else of, who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. That idea of concerned in a negative way is anxious. Anxious. Timothy, Timothy is emotionally connected to the success of the Philippian church. We tend to, in ministry, it's, it's, uh, it actually can be kind of a hardening experience. You've been hurt, you've been betrayed, you've been disappointed, you pour your life into somebody, they move, whatever it might be, they leave the faith, or whatever it might be. And sometimes you can become more hardened. Y'all, Timothy has been thrown in jail, he's been beaten, he has gone countless number of miles around the Mediterranean, and his heart's becoming softer. Again, because he lives his life quorum Deo. He doesn't use ministry as an excuse to have a hard heart towards people. He becomes even softer towards people. He is, an, he is emotionally weighed down by their concern. But notice what Paul says about Timothy. And, and, and in a sense, it's an indictment against the Roman church. He says that they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Now, some commentators were kind of, they were kind of mixed. He's not necessarily trying to, to make this comparison, but the comparison seems pretty obvious. Now, sometimes all means all types of people, male, female, slave, free, Greek, uh, Jew, that kind of thing. But here he seems to be saying, of all the Roman church, I don't have really anybody I can trust other than Timothy. Kent Hughes says the Roman church was afflicted with a pathetic self-centeredness. Y'all, that is our number one problem as a congregation. And, and it's one of these things that comes from being partly in an American church. We have such a consumer mentality that we, that, that we approach church with, what will it do for me? And then instead of, instead of really listening, was the, was the word of God preached there? Was truth there, there? Was there a joyful spirit there? Was the spirit presence uh, in the Sunday morning worship? We think, well, that hymn sounded old-fashioned. Well, the air conditioning was too cold. And it is, <laughs> you know, but we keep the men awake that way, you know, uh, the coffee was bitter, whatever. I mean, just fill in the blank. We're always doing that, aren't we? Because we think, what is the church going to do for me? Timothy thought, what can I do for the church? How can I serve the church? What in my life can I impart to help encourage and grow this church? What a, what a profound difference uh, that he has. And Paul is dealing with all of these, uh, the, 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 the self-centeredness of the Roman church. You know, you go back to chapter uh, 1, verse 17, where he describes some preachers who were proclaiming Christ out of rivalry, not sincerity, but thinking to afflict me in my punishment. I mean, there's out there, there are people out there thinking, Paul's in jail, I'm going to make him miserable by preaching. <laughs> yeah, what? But that's what they were doing. They were like, oh, because that way he'll be jealous that I'm out here preaching and he's in there. And how sad. This is the apostle that brought the gospel to them. And yet they're, they're, they're kind of caught up in this whole worldly approach. Now, apparently Luke and Aristarchus, some of uh, Paul's uh, companions in Rome, were maybe have been out of Rome at the time or they were sent somewhere else. 
But Paul has in the Greek no one of equal soul as he has Timothy. And he says here, you know of Timothy's proven worth. They, they were, they're familiar with Timothy's resume. Timothy was probably there in Philippi when the church was started. He was uh, Paul's ambassador to Macedonia. He was Paul's ambassador to Corinth. He also spent time in Ephesus. He ended up his career as an apostle there in Ephesus. So they, they understand him. But this idea of proven worth, the Greek term there is putting metal in a furnace and heating it up to the point where the dross comes to the top and you purify the metal. Timothy, as young as he is, he's probably in his mid-30s, he has been purified. He has suffered for the gospel and he has stayed true to the gospel. He didn't wimp out. He is not spineless. He is a man of courage, a man of devotion, and yet... He's not a man with natural strength. And I think that's why the, t the example of Timothy is so good. I mean, you look at Jesus, you think, well, I can never be like Jesus. Even the Apostle Paul points to himself as being an example. You look at Paul, and you think, well, that guy's such an alpha male. I mean, and he was highly educated. He probably spoke and wrote in five different languages. You know, he was a, a, probably had memorized most of the Old Testament. I could never be like Paul. Okay, you may have a struggle being like Christ. You may struggle being like Paul. But let me tell you, you are Timothy. You are Epaphroditus in many ways. And here's the key. It's not what you come to Christianity with what you bring to the table. It's what the Lord does through you once you have the Holy Spirit. Paul, Timothy struggled. If you understand, you know, look at First and Second Timothy and other um, examples in the book of Acts, for instance. Timothy was not wired as a natural leader the way the Apostle Paul uh, he, it says here he's spoken well of by the brothers of, of Lystra and Iconium. He was well liked because he was a man that they could respect, even though he struggled with fears. Uh, he struggled with insecurity, apprehensions. Uh, he probably was kind of physically not super impressive. He evidently had some uh, ailments and some human frailties. Uh, he, was, uh, had, he lacked self-confidence. He saw himself as too young to be able to carry this great task. And, uh, and he probably had a problem with lust. He had youthful lust. Paul tells him, be careful to put aside these youthful lusts. But here's the deal, and this is why Timothy is such a great example. As Dennis Johnson says, though he struggles with fear, he refuses to surrender to it. Now, some of us are more sensitive conscious than others, and it's always hard to preach to both of you because the sensitive conscious think you're, I'm always talking and picking on you, and the others are thinking they're always, they're, God, that pastor's always talking and, and preaching to him. You know, so, so let me just tell you this. And this is especially for young people, because uh, th there's a frailty that is apparent, perhaps, uh, uh, in, in some of our younger folks that may not be in those folks who were raised in the World War II generation, that kind of thing. You call into question your usefulness to God sometimes. And you think, well, I've got this ailment, I've got this condition, I've got some anxieties here and some insecurities here, and I've got some learning disabilities here, and my parents were divorced, and I don't know about this whole father's love thing very well, and, and the list goes on. And every one of us have some of those, right? Let me ask you a question. Did God make you? And if God made you, did God design you? Did God have a, a bringing together the X and Y and putting together your chromosomes and bringing in your personality at birth and putting you in the family? Did he do that? All right, let me ask you another question. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? So God made you the way you are for the purpose of glorifying him. 
So your, your ministry of glorifying God is very much connected with how God made you. He designed flaws in you. He designed maybe a difficult upbringing in you. Because he is using all of those failings in order to grow you up and depend upon him. People who think they have their act together, they don't need a savior in their mind. For the rest of us, we know we need a savior. So stop using your faults, physical infirmities, allergies, anxieties as an excuse to not to, to to not minister to other people for the glory of God. God designed you with those, frankly, so you can relate with other people and so that you will depend upon him. I think about uh, the possibility of Timothy's weakness. I've got a son who's um, he's going for the third time to Ukraine. He comes very close to the to the battle lines there. Uh, he uh, he has traveled the world. He has mopeded through Vietnam. He just he's been through Colombia. He's been in Turkey. He's been around the world. He he has this thing where he loves going out and he loves doing charity. And and of my children, he's the one that deals with sickness the most. I don't think he's ever come back from a trip with with not having a sore throat and a cough and everything else. And when we were together a few weeks ago, he said, it's just amazing. I do all these adventures and I'm going out there doing all these things, but I'm not designed for that in a lot of ways. My body isn't one of these just robust, strong bodies or anything. But that's even better. That's even better. Because he doesn't let the, the sickness be an excuse to keep him at home and to keep him from moving forward. So however that affects you, we can have this example of Timothy. He didn't, he, his struggles, his fears, his weaknesses and all that, he didn't give in to them. He wasn't consumed with self-interest. He was with like the Apostle Paul in verse 21 of chapter 1, to live as Christ and to die as gain. His whole perspective was, I'm going to serve Christ with what God has given me to serve him in. He says here, he's like a son with his father in the gospel. That idea of served is actually could be translated slave. He has been a slave to Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist minister, said this, if God has called you to be his servant, do not stoop to be a king. And that's really the lesson of, the, of humility there. Uh, there's a, uh, right when the church started a few years ago, we went down to Atlanta to a Nine Marks ministry conference. Nine Marks is a, uh, uh, really a reform ministry out of uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Mark Dever. And we were there in a conference and we was talking about the importance of discipleship. And, and uh, one of us raised their hand and said, yeah, how do you know who to disciple? And he said, and you've probably heard this before, but he said, you look for fat people. And of course, I was immediately offended. Uh, fat people, fat people, he's faithful, available, teachable. Faithful, available, teachable. If someone is faithful, available, and teachable, that's who you disciple. It doesn't matter how much they know, but if they're willing to make themselves available, if they are faithful with the little things that you've given them to do, they will be faithful also much. And if they're not so pig-headed and arrogant, they'll actually learn a lesson or two from you. That's the kind of person that you want to disciple. Timothy was fat. He was faithful. He made himself available. He made himself teachable. You, that's a goal of your life. Whatever you're doing that, that's pulling back from ministry, whatever you're, whenever you're not faithful in some of the little things, those are things you need to address. And you need to humble yourself to be teachable. You need to be teachable. And what will happen, God is going to bring people in your life. That's, he's going to reward you with that by bringing, helping you uh, grow uh, in the faith here. 
He says he hopes to send Timothy to me. You know, again, it's so hard for us to understand the perspective of travel 2,000 years ago. I mean, we, we have a two-hour layover in Atlanta airport. We're thinking, oh, this is an eternity, okay? Well, let me give you a sense here. This is from one commentary that, expl- that explained the kind of travel it would take to get from Rome to Philippi. You would go overland from Rome through the, the Via Appia to, uh, to uh, Bridzini on the, uh, Italy's southeastern coast. That's a 350-mile walk. Anybody walk 350 miles lately? A voyage across the Adriatic Sea, uh, that's a 90 mile, to the, uh, to the uh, Draconium on the western terminus of the Via Ignatia. Then you would do a 360 mile trek towards the, uh, on the Via Ignatia uh, across the uh, Macedonia to Philippi. All right? So you're going to be going 800 miles just to take the message. But then Paul wants to know how the Philippians are doing. So Timothy's going to get there or whoever he goes. They're going to get there. They're going to finally cut. They're going to put their suitcase kind of. They're going to find out everybody's doing fine. Then he's going to pick a suitcase back up and go back and tell Paul how everything's going. Available. Available. I mean, it's as uncomfortable as that seems to us. This is exactly what Timothy was willing to do. Uh, and he says here that he, Paul hopes to make that trek himself. He hopes to come to him shortly. He, he doesn't know the outcome. He doesn't know whether Caesar's going to chop his head off or let him go. But he's confident that it's going to happen. All right, that's the example of Timothy who overcomes his own frailty in order to serve the Lord. Now we look at the example of Epaphroditus in verses 25 through 30. I have, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he, was, uh, he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him and the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what's lacking in your service to me here. So Epaphroditus was a lay minister or perhaps even a pastor of the church at Philippi. Um, and he, and what the church of Philippi heard that Paul was in jail and they basically said, we need to go help Paul. So they sent a monetary gift with Epaphroditus to, to take that 800-mile journey to Rome to give Paul a monetary gift. And you think, well, what's the big deal about that? Why, he's in jail. Why does he need a monetary gift? This was not the current system of jail that we have. There was no cable TV. There were not three meals a day. When you were jailed, you were responsible for your own food, clothing, and medicine. Paul had to pay for his own jail expenses. Now, how's he going to do that? He can't earn a living. Well, the Philippian church said, we're going to we're going to send our money to Paul so that he can get good food. He can get a robe during the wintertime, whatever it is that he needs. So he and we know from Second Corinthians that Paul wouldn't allow that kind of sum of money to go with one person by himself. They they want to make sure everybody's above reproach, that they wouldn't be accused of stealing or anything like that. So there was probably a group of these young men who came and evidently Epaphroditus got sick on the way. One of the men returned to Philippi and told everybody that Epaphroditus was sick. But Epaphroditus had been, he had basically taken an oath to go deliver this money to Paul. And here he is at the point of death. But he goes, he faithfully ministers to Paul. He faithfully 
finishes his charge. He takes that money to Paul. As a result of his uh, sacrifice in this effort, Paul kind of throws out these five titles for Epaphroditus. He is my brother. So he's a genuine Christian. They have a common father. And you know what's beautiful about this? Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Literally, the Pharisees were raised, as some people are today, that, that racism, or, or in more particular, hating Gentiles, hating uh, um, uh, uh, Greeks, that, that that was part of their their religious system, now, because we're the people of God. We're going to look down on you. We're going to despise you. So Paul was raised to despise people just like Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, you know, his name comes from the goddess Aphrodite. When he was a baby, it might have been a, a ceremony somewhat similar to our baptism. There was a naming ceremony probably in the temple of Epaphrodite or, or Venus, if you're Roman, where they would have evoked her name upon blessings upon him. So he's literally named for a pagan goddess. And yet Paul says, this is my brother. He's a fellow worker. He elevates uh, Epaphroditus to being a peer with the apostle. He's a fellow soldier. This would have meant a lot to the people in Philippi because it was a lot of uh, veterans of the Roman wars that were living there. But it's also what we are. We are all soldiers in Christ's army. And the warfare that we fight is not against other people. It's against Satan and his legions who are controlling and influencing other people. Paul tells the Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to resist and stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic forces of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now, Epaphroditus, his mom and daddy, his family, his upbringing, everything, he was a prisoner of war. Jesus Christ came in freedom, and then he became a soldier for Christ Jesus. And that's the way it is for everybody who becomes converted. He is your messenger. This word is apostle, but it's not big A apostle like Paul. Uh, it's, he's a messenger and that he carries a message from a superior. It's something of an ambassador and then a minister for my need. That idea of minister is where we get our word liturgy. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, the, the minister was the one who was allowed to walk in the temple among the holy things. In the Christian world, uh, a minister is one who is called to walk among holy people. And it's a great compliment. So what Paul's doing here is he wants to make sure they don't think Epaphroditus somehow failed in his mission. He's returning early or something like that. He is reintroducing this faithful brother and affirming him to the Philippian church. He says he's been longing for you all. Epaphroditus was homesick. He didn't want to be in Rome. He wanted to go home and be with the church. But in particular, because he was he was concerned that they were worried about him. This is kind of my goal with you college students, through folks who may only be here for four years my goal is that you come to this church and you get fed spiritually, that you get that you develop relationships, that you get fed every now and then physically, and that when you graduate, you miss us. <laughs> You're a little homesick. And that the standard of this church, which we believe to be a biblical example, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. You will take this example out there elsewhere. You know, so if you don't if you don't miss us when you graduate or when you go home for the summer, we probably haven't done our our job yet. He had this wonderful fellowship back in Philippi. He's longs to be back with it. Doesn't say he wants to be back for his dog. He doesn't say he wants to be back for his family. He's homesick. He's longing for the church here. That longing is there's an intense desire that he has here. 
And he's been distressed because uh, he had heard that they knew that he was ill. So he's focused on others. This is the example, the the primary example we get from Epaphroditus. He is focused on others. His goal on the coming over was to serve the Apostle Paul. Now he wants to go back and serve the Philippian church again. Wonderful illustration of a woman who was like this. Henrietta Cornelia Mayers, she was the... uh, she was an author. She was one of the leaders of the Sunday school movement 100 years ago. She was at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. She discipled people like Billy Graham. Uh, and she was kind of the leader of the Christian education movement. Uh, it was said of Mears when she would uh, walk into a room, uh, she would walk into a room. Each person often had the feeling that she was saying to him or her, where have you been? I've been looking all over for you. Wow. Wow. Is that what is that the the impression people would get when you walk into a room that, that, that you're connecting with them and that you want to know how they are doing as an individual. How are they? How are they doing? I just thought that was such a, a great example. That's the kind of guy uh, Epaphroditus was. He was near to death here. He, he, in a sense, is sort of a living martyr. I mean, it doesn't get you don't get much sicker than being almost dead. And that's where he was because the journey wore him out or he picked up malaria or something on the way here. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says this, our tendency is to say, if it hurts, it cannot be truly spiritual. But Paul's tendency is to remind us that if it's spiritual, it may well hurt. You know, it may it may cost you something. Paul says he showed mercy, not only Epaphroditus, but him himself. He's already burdened with his ministry uh, responsibilities all over the Mediterranean world. He's already concerned about his own imprisonment. Epaphroditus' death would have been a, a severe blow to him, but God showed mercy. So he says, so receive him. Uh, with joy and honor such men. In other words, you are to look up and be and, and that he is a living example of the way a Christian is supposed to live. He nearly died for the work of Christ. John Calvin said this, he would rather be negligent as to his health than deficient in his duty. And the key part is he says, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That idea of risking is to throw aside. He saw his life as not as important as his ministry. And, and really, if you want to make a difference for Jesus Christ, I, that's not necessarily a suggestion you risk your life, but you, you, you should risk wealth, reputation, comfort, convenience. There are plenty of things that the Lord has allowed us to be able to risk that basically I mean, you're not going to you're not going to be some kind of masochist out there looking for punishment. But when that situation comes up, you throw aside your reputation if you need to. You throw aside a business opportunity if you need to, because you're looking for the glory of God. And that is your your primary focus. That's the way Epaphroditus uh, was. Another illustration from human history in the city of Carthage on the Mediterranean coast in North Africa. They had a severe plague in the year 252. And the the pagan inhabitants of uh, Carthage were so concerned about the plague, they were not ministering to people who were sick, and they weren't even burying the bodies. The bodies, the plague victims were just being thrown out in the street. But Cyprian, the bishop of the church there, led his Christians to go minister to the dying pagans and the sick pagans and to bury the bodies. And the example of risking everything for the sake of the gospel to show love to, to pagans was so profound that there was a revival in the city. The Lord may call us one day to take that kind of stance here in Anderson or wherever we live. So basically, Epaphroditus, uh, Paul closes here, this was, was lacking in your service. He's not really, when you read that, you sometimes think he's rebuking 
them. Basically, what he's saying here is because the distance between us is 800 miles, he is making up for what you can't do right now. So it's not really a, it's not a slight to, to that particular church. So Timothy and Paphroditus are replicas of Jesus Christ, the servant whom believers can see what selfishness and sacrifice look like and attitude in action. And just one thought, one commentator closes these thoughts with this statement. Let Timothy show you what it looks like to push back against your own fears and instead have, a, have your heart open to the cares and concerns of others. Let Epaphroditus show you the quiet courage it takes to risk to health and safety that puts one's own comforts and convenience in jeopardy for the work of Christ and service to the servants of Jesus. May we be like these two men. Father, we do turn to you and ask that you would bless us. We cannot do this without the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Convict us of our sins. Show us when we're doing it right. Show us when we're doing it wrong. And help us to move forward in faith and in strength. And let us be fruitful vines in the, in, when it comes to the conversion of souls and to the building up of the body of Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.